0: limited, not the center of the universe or the main character of the story. And as I mentioned last week, it's easy to get caught up in wondering about all the scientific issues that the Genesis account doesn't fully answer for us, such that it's, you can forget all the wonderful things that Genesis does give us that you can't find anywhere else. I'm not sure of any other piece of ancient literature that's made such a mark on worldwide society as this one, Genesis chapter one. Now in the section that you just heard read, uh, the pace of the creation story slows way down. In days one through five, in the beginning of six, you have you know, planets, galaxies, skies and seas, land. And uh, in, this, in this section, you have a lot of focus on a very special moment, the creation of humanity. And so instead of continuing with the usual refrain, and God said, let there be blank, and there was blank, you have here, then God said, and you have deliberation. You have reflection and conversation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then you get the first piece of proper poetry in the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him, him. Male and female, he created them. And so humans have been left wondering and marveling for millennia now at just what this means to be made in the image of God. So I, I can scarcely hope to do this passage justice in the next half hour or so, but let me offer a few reflections on what being made in God's image means for us. First, in terms of how we relate to our world, how we relate to our world as humans, how we relate to the world. Second, how we relate to one another. And then third, how we relate to God. So what does this passage mean for us? How we relate to our world, how we relate to one another, and how we relate to God. So first, how we relate to our world, both in work and in rest. First, in work. One of the first things you notice that after God declares that people are to be made in His image is that they are to have dominion over the rest of creation and to subdue the earth. You saw that in verse 26 and verse 28. Let's look again. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All the creepy stuff. And then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, of the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is repeated twice. So what's this about? Having dominion, subduing the earth. Uh, For years now, you know, critics have pointed to this passage as a proof text for why the Christian faith is really bad for the environment. You know, subduing, ruling, thinking that the whole earth is made for us and our benefit, this kind of leads people to trash the place. Historian Lynn White Jr., he wrote an article in the 1960s in Science, in Science Magazine, uh, that made this case. And it became really, really popular in conservationist circles. And while it may be true that Christian people have scorned environmental issues and even at times justified abusing the planet in the name of Genesis 1, this is not at all what Genesis 1 is about, and if you want to read more on this, I would recommend Chapter Three in our very own Mark Lederbach's book, uh, True North: Christ, the Gospel, and Creation Care. You can get the ebook online at Amazon and, and other places. But Mark and others point out that while have dominion and subdue, these are strong terms. This is not uncalled for, especially when you read the rest of the story. Okay, humans are not given unrequited dominion without thought for their maker or concern for his creation. They're managers, entrusted with the amazing task of pioneering and shaping civilization. This is a big task. I mean, if you want to create a garden or build a house or any constructive or creative task worth doing, you will need to harness and, yes, subdue the earth. Has anyone ever tried to do any gardening? This is my first two years making an attempt. You have to break up the ground. You have to sweat. You have to work. You have to find a way to subdue those bugs and weeds. Uh, just this week, one of my Northwake buddies here helped me put up a pretty cool wood wall in my office. And you know what? We had to subdue that wall with nail guns and levels and saws. And you know what? It felt pretty good. Wall Subdued, you know, but I think really a, a better example, perfect example, I think, of how humans might have been intended to have dominion over nature, yet still work in harmony with it, is a place like Duke Gardens. Has ever, anyone ever been to the Serape Duke Gardens? Yeah, we do some staff days of prayer out there from time to time, and to see nature both redirected and cultivated is truly stunning. To see the mix of design. And wilderness uh, put together. So, yes, as God's representatives made in his image, humans are given charge over nature, but not just for their own benefit or even nature's benefit, but in worshipful obedience to their Creator. So, one of the guys in my small group is house sitting for a family this week, or actually in the next two weeks while they're away on vacation. So, he's entrusted to look after the cats, check the mail. Spend the night there, cook his meals there. He's in charge, and he gets the benefits of living in that house for a while. But if the family were to come back and find that he had left a huge mess in the kitchen after the small group guys went over there, never took out the trash, and God forbid, forgot to feed the cats and let them starve, this is not what the owners intended. My point is just this. Things go wrong with the world when we forget that we too are creatures made by God and given a stewardship, not a dictatorship. Things go wrong when mankind is elevated to the ultimate place in the universe with no God to keep him in check. So just understand this passage teaches us that God doesn't just care about the spiritual stuff that you do, like prayer and Bible reading, but he blesses and calls good the work of our hands. Building houses, writing code, mopping floors, roasting coffee, educating children, all this is part of what it means to subdue and cultivate the world that God has given us. So do you know, do you know that your work matters to God too? And do you work like your work matters to God? Can you take pride in your work this week? Maybe even take some pleasure in it and work hard because it does matter. And it's a big part of what God made us in his image to do. Now, no doubt, work is a four-letter word and it's tainted by the curse. And we'll see that uh, in a couple of weeks. But that doesn't mean that work itself is a bad thing. Far from it. It was created good. But humans are also meant to relate to our world in rest, in work and in rest we see God himself on the seventh day stopping his work and blessing a day of rest. You saw this at the very end of the passage. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this is important. Did God rest because he was tired? No. Why does he rest? To celebrate. He steps back. He takes delight in the world that he has made. Now this is interesting. For us, this means if we are made in his image then we should embrace a rhythm of resting, working, celebrating, and delighting in the life that God has given us. Not just because we're wiped out and need a break, although that's probably a valid point as well, but because this is, this is part of what it means to be human. We should enjoy Sabbath, not just because of our limitations, but because of our design. So do you have a pattern of life that enables you to do this, to stop, delight, and worship the God who made it all? Or is your life just go, 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 go? That's not just tiring. It's also against your wiring because you were made in the image of a delighting, celebrating God. Not just a working God. Now, much more could be said on this, but for sake of time, we're going to have to move on. But I would encourage you to read a blog that will be coming out um, on our Northwake Leaders blog. You can just scroll to the bottom of the homepage of the website to find it on the importance of our physical bodies uh, by Northwaker Marie Burris. So look out for that this week. So that's our world. Secondly, how we relate to one another. How we relate to one another. Verse 27. So God created man. In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in the ancient world, only the kings were said to be made in the image of God. The Pharaoh and the Babylonian kings, these were the image of God to the people. So they had their image and likeness stamped on currency, on statues all over the place. They were supposed to be the representation or the manifestation of a God to the people. It's a pretty handy way to keep your power, right? I'm the the God, right? But Genesis 1 said something very different. All mankind created in God's image. Therefore, each person has a special measure of dignity and respect that should be afforded them. Every life, not just the king's, is sacred. Now, this is one of the amazing things. For all the things that Genesis might not answer for you, Genesis 1 gives you something pretty amazing here. And that's a grounding or a rational foundation for human rights. We're all about human rights in the modern era. But what basis do we have for them? What basis do you set that on? Uh, For example, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, it has a lot of great things to say, like this, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. It's a great statement, but it it doesn't give the whole declaration, if you read the whole thing, it doesn't give any reason why, why human rights should exist, why we would say or assume that we are born free and equal in dignity. It's an assumption. And someone might say, well, isn't that just obvious? The history of the world would say otherwise. You underestimate how much Genesis 1 has shaped our thinking as a society. And without a foundational story like this in Genesis 1, I'm not sure how you get to human rights, logically speaking. I mean, if I'm an animal like any other and you're an animal and we're all the result of a truly random, purposeless process. What's all this talk about being free and equal in dignity and worth? If you have something that I want, nature is red in tooth and claw. And what stops me from taking it from you? Why shouldn't I run over you to get it? See, it's no accident that Martin Luther King Jr. didn't just argue that desegregation would be better for our society, He said something much stronger, that each person was made in the image of God. And this gives each person, in his words, a uniqueness. It gives him a worth. It gives him a dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man, from a treble white to a bass black, is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because, this is his reasoning, Every man is made in the image of God. Genesis 1, the Christian faith, it gives us the strongest grounding for human dignity and worth that you can think of. So, my dear Christian family, do you treat others in step with what you say you believe about them? Of all people, if what I'm saying is true, then Christians should have the strongest motives for treating others with exceptional dignity, exceptional dignity and respect, seeing them as precious image bearers of God. The clerk at the grocery store, the driver in front of you in traffic, the people you watch on your screens, the child in the womb, your boss, your employees, your spouse, your roommate, your kids, your worst enemy all bear the image of their maker. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his classic quote, uh, quote, puts it so well. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with all in circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, but it is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. May God help us See each other. Treat one another for what and who we really are. May this shape and fuel our urgency in having gospel conversations with those around us. This dignity and respect, it extends to the self as well, you know. The image of God, it provides a a foundation for appropriate self-respect and acceptance. Uh, The late Dr. Paul Brand Uh, He grew up as a missionary kid and went on to become a truly world-class reconstructive surgeon. And he spent most of his career serving uh, leprosy patients in India. But he recounts a story from his time in medical school in England during World War II. Uh, Dr. Brand was part of the medical team that would treat Royal Air Force pilots when they were shot down or had to eject in the dogfights that happened over London skies. And, you know, the, the Royal Air Force, these were the best and brightest of England. They were truly her heroes. They were the lone line of defense between the Nazi bombers and the helpless citizens on the ground. So people worshiped the ground that they walked on. But some of them got shot down or they had to eject in an emergency. And there was a, a fatal flaw in the design of the plane system that would just burst into flames right in their face as they ejected. And so many of them, their hands and faces were severely burned and disfigured. So Dr. Brand's medical team would help reconstruct their faces from skin grafts taken from their arms and their stomachs. And while they did amazing work for that day and age, plastic surgery in the 1940s is not what it is today. And so the young, once handsome, talented RAF pilots would eventually have to leave the hospital with their appearance permanently altered and deformed. And Dr. Brand found that going forward, Some pilots could hardly make their way through society. They became depressed, um, isolated, while others went on to live very full lives. They ran successful businesses, uh, married or entered politics and, and whatnot. And the thing that made all the difference in these young men's lives was whether or not their fiancés and their wives who were with them before the accident stood by them or not. Many of them uh, quietly filed for divorce or called off their weddings because they didn't think they could stand being married to uh, the man who looked like this. But Dr. Brand wrote about one of his, one of his patients, a pilot named Peter Foster. He said, Peter Foster's fiancee assured him that nothing had changed but a few millimeters thickness of skin. She loved him, not his facial membrane, she said. The two got married just before Peter left the hospital. Naturally, Peter encountered painful rejection from some. Many adults quickly looked away when he approached. Children, cruel in their honesty, made faces, laughed, and mocked him. Peter wanted to cry out, "'Inside, I'm the same person that you knew and praised before. Don't you recognize me?' Instead, in those moments, he learned to turn toward his wife. And these are Peter Foster's words. He said, "'She became my mirror.'" She gave me a new image of myself. Even now, regardless of how I feel, when I look at her, she gives me a warm, loving smile. And that tells me that I am okay. Now, I want to make this as clear as I can, especially to my youth in the room, but really for all of us. Beware of looking into the wrong mirror for your worth and identity. And we we look so hard for validation in the eyes of others. In the clothes that we wear, our sexuality, academic performance, on the ball field or the court. We try to craft an image of ourselves that we want other people to see and like. But hardly ever is that projected image the reality of who we are. We try so hard to create an image of ourselves when there is already an image in which we have been created, one that you don't have to achieve or curate, but given to you by God. You see, there is a better mirror out there, a much kinder mirror to look into, one that can give you a new image, an identity that's far more durable than anything else that you can find out there or manufacture on your own. And one other piece of this, and how we relate to ourselves while we're talking about image, and that we notice from the passage is that of being made male and female. A question of gender. So in a contentious age, you know, of choosing your pronouns and selecting your gender, we need to respectfully consider why the whole concept of binary gender, male and female, should even matter to us. And if you're listening to me and you just totally disagree with that, uh, hear me out. Hear me out for just a second. Notice the third line of the poem about people. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Why that? Why say that in the poem about people, the people poem? Why make such a tight connection between being made in God's image And being made male and female. I think it's saying more than just, well, women are made in God's image too, you know. Although that's certainly true. And it would have been quite a statement in the ancient world. But look carefully. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So then what does he do? Well, he creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. Why say it like that? This has drawn a lot of debate from commentators. When you read this passage, you know, Christians, of course, read it and say, oh, sweet, that's nice, the Trinity, right there at the beginning. Chabam, what do you know? To which many scholars say, whoa, 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 not so fast, people. There's no way the author, the original author, was thinking about the full-blown doctrine of the Trinity at this point. This is more like a plural of majesty, where the Queen of England says, let us go to the garden and we shall retire there for the afternoon. You know, or... Perhaps this is God deliberating with his heavenly council of angels about what to do. And that is possible. But other commentators, like John Salehammer, who used to teach at SCBTS, say, Not so fast either, you scholar people. Salehammer says, Notice that after what God says, let us make man in our image, notice what he then does. He makes people in plurality, mankind expressed. In male and female. Doesn't he start to kind of show his cards just a little bit on his own plurality by making people in this way in his image? So maybe the Trinity's not such a stretch after all. Why do I draw out this theological point? Well, for Christians, gender isn't just some arbitrary assignment by God. Here's your gender, hope you like it. That's just the way that it is. It's a way that we in our very being can reflect the many yet one nature of God Himself. We talked last week about how the Christian God is utterly unique because He was not eternally alone but eternally loving in relationship. By creating us male and female, He made us that we might reflect God together with all of our unique differences bound up in love and in unity. So gender is a sacred thing for us. But it's not lost on me you know, that many young people today wrestle with their gender identity and some um, don't even feel at home in their own bodies. And I'm sure that is a really, really painful experience. But I'm also sure that you are made by God. You are loved by God and your gender is not an accident, and that while you may not be able to help the feelings of gender incongruity that you experience, you do have say over how much weight you give those feelings and what you choose to do with them. Our societal scripts today would tell you that these feelings reveal who you really are deep down, and so you should change your body, change how you look in the mirror. But once again, listen to me. God would offer you a kinder mirror, one that would tell you to look to God and see that your body and your gender were created by God to reflect his image. And that's a good and noble thing. So you don't have to change how you look in a physical mirror to accept the body that you were given. Still, I know this is a complex issue, And if this is something that you or someone that you love struggles with, uh, we do have some resources that we might recommend. Uh, Books like God and the Transgender Debate by Andrew Walker, which is much more pastoral than the title makes it sound. Um, Or there's a shorter book just called Transgender by Vaughn Roberts, published by the Good Book Company, very short book, that would be a good start. And we're blessed to have some counselors here in our church who have engaged with these kind of issues before. So if we could be of help to you in some way, um, I know this would be a hard conversation, but please... Reach out, reach out to us. So last, how we relate to God. What it means to be made in his image, how we relate to him. So the first thing that you must notice in this passage about being made in God's image is the most obvious. We are made, we are created beings. I'll read this verse again that we've read several times with an emphasis on one word. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This means we aren't self-determining, independent beings. Contrary to the Invictus poem that we love, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. And we love a self-made, independent, need-nobody kind of hero. Like just in the recent Justice League movie, the Zack Snyder version, the climax of the film is where the superhero, the Flash, runs so fast that he's able to turn back time and change the outcome. And as he does it, he says, make your own future. Make your own past. Determine. Determine your own, you know, whatever. Well, we might not be able to do that. First of all, we can't run faster than the speed of light. We are creatures with limits. And I think our fascination, you know, with superheroes perhaps shows how much we long to break these limits. But we're finite, dependent, needy creatures. Every time we eat something, we show our true colors. Lunch is a reminder that you are not self-sufficient. We're dependent on the fruit of the earth to survive. You see this in verse 29. God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. It's a gift. It's his provision. But it implies that we're dependent, need, not infinite. And though, although we are created, finite, limited beings. Notice some wonderful things about how we are made. As soon as he makes the man and the woman, God speaks to them. He blesses them. He provides for them and he delights in them. We are humble, but we are honored, specially created in God's image. Now what does that mean exactly? I've I've danced around the idea of being made in God's image all morning so far, but I haven't tried to define what that means exactly because it's hard to define And at the great risk of oversimplifying, I'll say that being made in God's image means we were made to be like God and to act like God. Not to be God, but to be made like Him and to act like Him. Being made in His image sets us apart from the rest of the created order. It implies that we have a native connection, a relationship with God that animals don't have. And it implies that we were made to be like Him and share in His righteousness and holiness. So my three kids, when all three of our kids were born, my poor wife, especially when my firstborn came, people would say, that is the spitting image of their dad. You have had the same baby three times, which I think just maybe shows how much I look like a baby, but... um, you know, people look at these photos. Is there, no, is there two of them? Uh, they say, you know, is, is that the same kid? I don't know, honestly, maybe. I can't even tell them apart in the pictures. You know, uh, So are we the same thing? Me and this baby? No. But my kids have the capacity to look like me, to be like me, and act like me, increasingly so over time. Now thankfully they are starting to resemble their mom a bit more these days. But of course we we don't look like God in the sense of our earlobes or our cheekbones or our nose shape. But we were made to look like him spiritually to reflect his love, his holiness and his goodness. And yet tragically we have all defaced his image. We have become disfigured and deformed by the curse of sin and need to be remade. Now, this is where the New Testament authors totally pick up on and riff off of this theme of the image of God to clue us in as to who Jesus was and what he came to do. They say things like this in Colossians 1. He, Jesus, is the image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. He looks just like God. Of all creation. And for all who have faith in him, they say, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. This is how we are remade into God's image. All who look to Jesus in faith have a better mirror to look in than Peter Foster, the RAF pilot. Because when you look to Jesus, instead of everything else in this world, to give you your sense of identity and worth, something amazing happens. When you look to Jesus in faith, you're not just inwardly affirmed and comforted. You're transformed. You're not just reassured on the inside when you look at Jesus. You don't just feel better about yourself. You are changed and renewed. When you see Jesus on the cross, disfigured beyond all recognition for you so that you could bear the image of your maker once again, this will change you. When you see his face beaten with sticks, his beard pulled out, his face marred beyond human likeness, the Bible says, crushed for our iniquities. When you see the beauty of heaven take on the ugliness of sin, so that you and i could be remade in god's sight and beautiful once again it changes you john newton when on the cross my lord i see bleeding to death for wretched me satan and sin no more can move for i am transformed all to love his thorns and nails pierce through my heart in every groan i bear apart i view his wounds with streaming eyes but see he bows his head and dies Come, sinners, see the Lamb of God, wounded and dead and bathed in blood. Behold his side and venture near. The well of endless life is here. When you behold Jesus in faith on the cross for you, 2 Corinthians 3 says, We are not merely comforted, we are transformed and changed. Bit by bit into the image of God, we were made to reflect. Let's pray. So God, we thank you for your words to us. Words that we need to hear. Hearing our place and how we were made. It, it, first, it humbles us. It knocks us down from putting ourselves up on the highest, the highest rung. And yet it also honors us. Dignified, noble, made to be with you, made to act like you. and yet deeply broken. Lord, as we, as we hear these words, grant us faith to look to you once again so that we could be made like you inwardly in true righteousness and holiness, reflecting your image. God, even this week, help us see one another in light of being made in your image worthy of dignity and respect. Give us grace for these things, we pray, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's proclaim the majesty of our Creator.